let's just do things together. Because at the end of the day, if you just tell a kid to go smile more and long toss, he'll get better. And just by saying, hey, let's be new school and let's be progressive, I certainly hope that that doesn't close us off to anything that may be pre-established as truth or pre-established as really, really good insight, even if it isn't measurable. Hey, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud, the official voice of data. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. In this episode, I welcome Max Wiener, a former pitcher who started his own player development center called the Arm Farm. Max just got hired as the pitching coordinator for the Seattle Mariners after spending last year as a minor league player development coach with the Cleveland Indians. And on this episode, we cover a few key points that include what pitching development looks like in the offseason, how data plays a huge role in factoring into game decisions, and how it can affect players' confidence. But we also get into how the mental aspects of players are just as important as physical. Here is Max Wiener. Max Wiener, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thanks, Jonathan. You've been a, a gentleman throughout all this. I know we've gone through a lot to sort of make this happen, so happy to finally do it. No, absolutely, and I'm just uh, thankful to get you on the mic and uh, get you recording and just asking you questions and basically getting out of the way. So for our <laughs> listeners who, you know, they just want to probably hear a little bit of background of who you are and, and where you're at currently. Okay. So if you don't mind, go ahead and throw that out for us. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Right now, I'm the pitching coordinator for the Seattle Mariners. Um, and I guess from there, I'll sort of start you from the beginning and I'll make it quick. Sure. I'm from Miami, Florida. And, you know, Miami is a very unique place, riddled with talent, so much baseball all around. And from the time I was 12, I actually left Miami and went to a boarding school for six years. So from the ages of 12 to 18, I was gone from home and living in Gainesville, Georgia, the poultry capital of the U.S. So. <laughs> It, it kind of smells exactly how it sounds, wow. but really cool place, really special. And, uh, it was awesome to be there. So my dad's dad passed away when he was a young, uh, young boy about a week before his bar mitzvah. And my dad was sort of like searching for guidance and he went to that military school. So it just seemed appropriate to sort of follow in that, uh, sort of path. And my brothers went that same Avenue as well. I have three brothers and we went there and, Thankfully, by the end of my time there, after playing baseball, I was able to be the battalion commander. So I was sort of understanding what it was like to lead and delegate and work within 500 kids your own age. Like, how do you wake a 16, 17-year-old kid up when you're 15 years old and make him get dressed and shaved? Like, that's a ridiculous task. Sure. But that was just the start of the day. Uh, from there, I, I bounced around. Uh, trying to find a place to play college. And it was really my dream to do uh, Division One baseball. The unfortunate thing was that I really wasn't that good, but it sort of lended itself to different avenues, and I got to transfer and go different places. And I finished off at FIU, and that was a very special thing because I got to come back home to Miami and do that. And while I was there, I sort of said, you know what, I love coaching, I love playing, Playing is definitely not what's going to get me what I want in life and sort of used life as a textbook uh, and went a very unconventional route and created a company while I was playing called The Arm Farm. Mm -hmm. And what it was is a player development company uh, sort of dabbled with consulting as well. And it sort of uh, parlayed into a lot of other opportunities. I'm sure we can talk on that later. But from there, ran that company for a couple of years while I was playing after I was able to bring in a couple other really smart guys working to bring on young people who were still in college to help put it on their resume, get that life experience. And while they were playing before they move on. And then from there, I went and took a job with the Cleveland Indians, a really 
such a special organization. And I was there for a year and I got to be with amazing, amazing people and have my hands in so many different pots and languages and learning about sort of different domains. And while I was there, it very recently became an opportunity to go and interview with the Seattle Mariners. And now I'm there now as their pitching coordinator. Oh, that's awesome. And we, uh, we, we've spoken before a couple of times about having a mutual acquaintance with the Indians and Mark Allen. And yeah. I want to, you know, just talk about, talk about that just for a second, just because he had, I played for him in college and he had such a huge influence on my life. And, and so, uh, he's, he's one of the reasons that I got into coaching and I'm sure that, uh, that you have had a pleasant experience with him, but, uh, but that's, that's pretty cool. Oh, Baseball's man. a small world. It is. And I'm so happy you said that because Mark is, a beautiful, beautiful soul. I literally, every person he gets in touch with, it's a game jam. We've talked about this a million times. Mm-hmm. Mark will walk into a room and he has this innate ability to understand sort of the dynamic, right? What's the temperature of the room mm-hmm. and how do you facilitate conversation? And he's, uh, he is the epitome of a sponge where he'll just create an environment where everyone just starts talking and he listens and then pivots and it's amazing. And he is a baseball genius, and he is currently actually the pitching coordinator for the San Francisco Giants. So he's leading that charge, and he's doing an amazing, amazing job. And I think there are a lot of people with the Indians and around baseball who would echo those sentiments. Oh, for sure, for sure. Well, let's go ahead and get into some player development. And like you mentioned, All right. you you started the Arm Farm, and I mean, at, at like 20, 21 years old, and and that developed into and really parlayed you into to a position in professional baseball. But uh, we're yep. speaking mostly with with uh, high school, college coaches. At least that's most of our audience. And and so if we're just going to kind of throw a blanket statement out there, which is you know advice for the off season is because it's so it varies so much for, from staff to staff and player to player. But you know, what's your just your best advice on somebody who wants to run a killer offseason program for their pitchers that are, you know, between the ages of 13 and you know, 22-ish? Ooh, 13 to 22. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'd say probably the number one thing you want to do is sort of create a plan. These very short-term and long-term almost check marks within the calendar and know exactly what it is that you're looking for. And once you can sort of establish what those benchmarks may be, you can say, okay, I value this benchmark and maybe that get to a certain number of throws per day or get to a certain miles per hour or a certain movement quality. Once I value that, perfect. What, or not what, but when will that value change? When will I start valuing that less and something more? So, and what I mean by that is at the very beginning of the off season is we want to be almost restoring ranges of motion, uh, especially for guys who are more in my population, which is anywhere from 16 to 30 something. Mm-hmm. And what that is just, there's so much damage going on. I mean, we know that there's a huge loss of elbow extension range of motion. You can go on and listen to the Ryan fairs of the world. Talk about amazing <laughs> tests and assessments that are going on. But from a fundamental pitching standpoint is if you can get back to normative ranges and that involves, getting with a PT, getting with an AT, and asking them to go through these sort of tests and then make sure that those tests are actionable. So something that could be really useful for a team on a small budget may be getting a modus sleeve with a small little subscription and just understand, okay, this guy's arm speed is looking like this on January 1st and his range of motion looks like this on January 1st. How's that going to look in June? What's that going to present like the day after a start? And you can start to sort of piece these things together. And without just saying, hey, do this and do that and being very prescriptive, uh, you can start to understand what some ratios are like. And I, I guess the, the number one thing to take away from that would be the next step is having a background in some sort of physiology and kinesiology, understanding like tissue loads and what is periodization model uh, would be ideal, like within a large periodization model for multiple months and then within a week, like is a specific player better at microdosing, meaning he gets a small amount of this type of stimuli frequently within a seven or 10 day window, or is he better with a super compensation model and sort of borrow, which would mean like a heavy load on the front end, take some time to recover and come back up almost on the curve. 
and understanding what that's like. And it's funny because I've had this talk and I've been running these weighted ball programs within both of those models for a long time to try to understand who is better in profiling, which and which. And I wish I had an answer that I could tell everyone, but I don't, I don't really have that running like multiple studies that last like two year longitudinal studies. I don't know what's best at this given day. So I, I think it's probably best shot right now. No, for sure. And it sounds like it, that involves a lot of communication with the player themselves and how they're feeling. Is that accurate? Absolutely. You know, and it's interesting because you and I have talked about feel a lot just on a personal level. Mm-hmm. But just asking a player how they feel is a, is a really special question. And I think when you can say, look, I don't really care how you feel right now, but I want to know how you feel in general. Because it's so easy to feel poorly if you slept less than three hours that night before you party two days before and you're dehydrated. So sort of knowing that is really important with knowing that feel is generally a larger picture thing rather than a very focused, how do you feel in this given second? But I think at any point, any good coach and talking about Mark uh, involving the player so they can put their own handprint on their own career, knowing what it's like to be involved and have that emotional investment too, which isn't tangible, but, matters no and and that's the quickest way to receive buy-in and and i'm sure you've worked for people and and we all have that pretty much tell us what we need to be doing and that that for me that that comes with a little backlash of well maybe that's not the exact way i would do it i'll do it but i may not do it to the most full extent that i possibly could just because i don't have any say in it and and so that that's that's at least the route that i've been taking late lately and and like like you said it's it's not it's not tangible, but at the same time, I think we're going to see better results whenever we do involve them in the process. Yeah, I think some of the softer skills in life, right, like being how being able to relate sure. and make it make yourself very comfortable, and then make the other person very comfortable. You know, as a communicator, it's not the listener's job or the other the player's job to be able to frame our message. It's our job to deliver it correctly and let them know that it's okay to reciprocate you know, a total freedom and total transparency. So being able to do that is number one thing, but chances are if someone's listening to this, they're really about that anyway. Absolutely. I mean, you couldn't have put it better for sure, but you know, something that, that again, I, I ask these blanket statements just because you see so many different aspects of player development and you, You've seen them from different parts of the country and different really parts of the entire world. But is there something that, mm-hmm. that stands out as kind of a common problem that you see with kids? And, and the reason I ask is because I'm in it every day with these 13 to 18 year olds. And if there's some way that I can yeah. help them uh, get better for the next level, then I want to do that. But what are some of maybe some of the most common problems, maybe not just one or two, but what are some common problems that you see with kids that, with youth age kids? Well, with kids, you know, I, I, I wouldn't really know. I think I'd probably be giving you my best guess. And at that point, any listener could probably give you a better answer than I could. Okay. But it just seems like baseball as a whole, something that is a gigantic issue is understanding sort of roles in my mind. And I think that that bleeds down to kids a lot of the time with understanding who they go to for lessons okay. or in the offseason where professional players are are you going to go back to your college? Are you going to go back and train with the strength coach and then have a separate pitching coach? And what does that look like? And understanding those kind of expertises and understanding there's like a huge, huge need. If you're on social media to be an expert in every field, right? Like you have to be super proficient with kinesiology. You have to be super proficient with biomechanics. You need to be a great throwing coach, a sports psych guru. You have to do all these things. Uh, the great luxury that we have in professional baseball is that everyone can complement each other very well. Mm-hmm. So we can have a great mental performance coach complemented by a top-notch CSCS with a Biomex guy supporting that, as well as the fundamental coach helping to program exactly what's going to go into a very specific, say, curveball training session or pitch design session. And I think that if we get kids who sort of understand what that's like and say, okay, you know what, I don't have to have a superstar coach to be able to buy into something. Mm-hmm. I just have to have people who care about me and have knowledge in different fields. Uh, 
I guess that would probably be the thing is asking kids to be more resourceful and having, I guess, experts really in their own specific field be able to collaborate and come up with like more comprehensive plans for guys. And I think if we get that, that would make everyone's job a lot easier in professional baseball and in the amateur level, because how great is it for you? And we've talked about this is your high school. It's great. Everything's awesome. So why wouldn't the S and C coach have involvement with you? And you start to sort of blur those lines and speak a uniform language. Uh, I don't know if that's a problem with the players or if that's just like a market inefficiency, but the more we can get that, I think the better off we'll be. Definitely. And that's something that, you know, I've tried to get better at is just communication through throughout all the different avenues because the kids they they just want to they want to get better and so the only way that we're going to help them get better the fastest is having communication between all sides and not having really an ego with it and sometimes that's really good conversations and sometimes it's it's not as good as you'd hope them to be but <laughs> yeah I, I definitely think could be just because baseball is so it's it's such a it's such a sport of uh, we don't have a common language between everybody but it's uh it would make it again you can't fault the kid for going to different avenues whenever your high school coach wants to be at home with his kids and then they want to go get lessons from a guy that's really good as well so just having communication between both of those sides is, it helps tremendously and we have our own snc guy which uh man that's that is so so helpful and, and i've been at, at places that don't and that's that it, it definitely makes it tough but something else that we see a ton of, and, and you're going to see it just even more prevalent over the next couple of months and years, is information and, and data. And, you know, you brought up an interesting point of, of okay, information's great, but how do we use it in games and how do we help that with decision making as, as a coach? Yep. And, and I'm sure you've been immersed in that in the last, you know, uh, 12 months. And so do you mind digging into that a little bit for us? Uh, no, 100%. See, this like the whole game management side of it and working through a lot of this stuff is kind of like, it's almost my greatest passion. So I get a lot of talks about like the biomech side of it and talk about like the training side of it. And that's really fun. But the game management is, is awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess we'll, I'll talk about it like this is when you look back at the playoffs this year, uh, it was crazy. <laughs> Think about how much criticism went to every manager each and every given day. And you hear or at least I hear something a lot within professional baseball, which I really wholeheartedly disagree with. And it's that everyone has access to the same information. It's just what you do with it. Well, yes and no. And the reason why I disagree is because, yeah, you have access to raw data points, hundreds and thousands of small little data points that are almost meaningless until they're worked through and aggregated and done uh, everything with. And we can talk through some of the finer points of analytics. But one thing that I I see a lot is the art of coaching combined with analytics. And what I mean by that is understanding behavioral economics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I love poker. I've played poker for a long time. My brother is best friend. We played a million tournaments, go to Vegas, do fun things like that. And we don't necessarily gamble. Uh, We don't go play slots or anything, but we play that game. We almost view it as like a basketball tournament where we're going to go in, we're going to be prepared, we're going to have plays, like we know exactly what's going on. And there's a really cool lady named Annie Duke. And while I was with the Indians, there's a, a superstar in the front office named Alex Merberg. He's a rock star. And he was reading the same book that I read before by Annie Duke, who's a former poker player, and it's called Thinking in Bet. And it talks about the difference between poker and chess. And I promise if you're probably thinking, what the heck is Max talking about? And Mm -hmm. I'll circle back to analytics here. But in chess, so much of it is a skill-based game where you get to work numbers black and white almost. You say, this is a good strategic move. This is a bad strategic move. This sets up two or three points later. Whereas poker, there's a ton of skill and a ton of probabilistic thinking that needs to go on. But at the same time, there's luck and there's also human behavior. And sort of understanding and being able to navigate that is the number one thing. Well, we're watching the postseason this year. And and let's just say I don't want to call anyone or do anything or make any illusions. So let's just say the Mariners this year were in the playoffs and they were in the World Series. And Edwin Diaz is on the mound back when they had him. Mm -hmm. Well, if this guy is just like on a video game and he's a 99 overall and he's ready to pitch 
and all you have is his baseline skill level. And you know, man, this guy is a rock star. And you put him into pitch, you're feeling pretty good. Now, just know at that point that the best pitcher in the world is going to give up a run roughly a third of the time, right? Whether it's earned, whether it's not, just keep that in mind as we're moving forward. So if he's a 99, he's the best pitcher overall. But against lefties, he's really bad. I'm not saying he is, but hypothetically, he's really bad against lefties. And that brings his overall level down to a 94. And then the manager looks over and sees that he's not doing so great. Body language isn't there. Bullpen coach says, you know what? He's been feeling a little sore. He's not really feeling good. Something may be going on with his head. I have no idea. Now, this is just a made-up person and a made-up name. Uh, I think a lot of times we get caught up in baseline numbers and understanding like that players regress back to their baseline skill level mm-hmm. and don't get hot or cold or rise to moments or fall down. But I think to an element that you, you sometimes do a little bit. And when you're looking at a suggestion and when you say, okay, bring in the best pitcher because out of 100,000 times, he will get the out the most times. Out of 100,000 times, you're probably correct. At game 131, you're probably correct. But when you're there and you're in Yankee Stadium and there's a third deck and there are people yelling and screaming and this kid's got a baby and this pitcher's got a baby at home and a wife and a family and he's a human, there's a lot more that goes into it. So before we dig into the numbers, knowing how important it is to weigh the human side of it and bring that to the table, in my mind, is huge. So that's a whole long-winded way to say there are soft analytics and hard analytics in a way, mm-hmm. and you can't quantify some, so whatever. Within game management, unique, and I've never been able to do that, and I've never been at the big league level making these decisions, and nor would I pretend to. But you can certainly, I think if anyone's ever been a coach, you certainly fantasize about what that w- would be like. Well, should I be in that spot one day? A question I would probably ask is, okay, what's the approach that we have? And there's an, there's an author named Jordan Ellenberg, and he writes this book, he wrote this book called How to Not, Not Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. And he opens up the book with a really cool narrative about this professor from Columbia University who hails from Austria, but he has to leave due to German occupation. And he ends up helping the U.S. in World War II. Now, his utility is that he's a leader within this smaller outfit called the Statistical Research Group. He's pretty much a rock star mathematician. His name's Abraham Wald. And they did everything from mathematics issues to tax to algorithmic strategy, whatever. Well, the generals in this case are there supporting and they're working the foot soldiers on the ground. And Wald is what our equivalent would be, would be in the front office working the analytics. Now, their job is to sort of bridge together to create this super united front. How do the people with the numbers go to the people, the generals, the coaches, and make it actionable for a player and make those decisions? Well, the generals go to Wald and they say, hey, man, we have something for you. We are getting all these planes back, and we need you to create this mathematical solution for us. We're seeing a gigantic issue. These planes that are being shot down all have these holes and they're scattered all around the plane and like this random mosaic pattern that we cannot figure out. The issue is, is we're seeing way more bullet holes in the engine than we are the fuselage. We need you to create a mass solution to help us out so we know how much armor we need to put on the engine and the areas where our planes are getting hit the most. Seems reasonable, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Wald comes back and says, look, That's not the case at all. You're thinking about it completely wrong. What you actually need to do is put the armor where planes aren't getting hit at all. And the reason for that is all the planes that you're looking at and going through are ones that haven't been shot down. All the ones that are getting shot down are shot down in the engine or shot down in the, uh, yeah, in the engine. So understanding what that's like with the front office having access to so much information and then making it actionable is huge. Meaning, if we know that a pitcher is going to give up a run uh, roughly a third of the time, but we need one single out to happen, how do you have matchups? I think at that point as coaches, whether it's amateur or in professional, you need to start understanding is what sort of metrics do you want to value? And how do you make sure that you don't overvalue a singular metric or start associating success with a metric that you really like? 
And I think what that comes down to is process metrics and outcome metrics. So process-based metrics would be pitch quality, meaning vertical and horizontal movement profiles, and what's actually happening, such as whiff rates, uh, chase rates out of the zone, in-zone contact, stuff like that. Some of the more outcome-based metrics would be, say, ISO, which is a measure of somebody's power, mm-hmm. or weighted runs created plus. And there's a ton of ways that you could go about it, given the certain situation and how your organization or how you want to preach. But if it's in my mind, one of the things that I hear all the time is trust the process, follow the process. Well, control the controllables. Now, there's a really cool thing for pitching in particular where we can value players based on these really controllable process-oriented statistics. And they're out of this great uh, like family of what's called DIPS, Defense Independent Pitching Metrics or Statistics. And within that, there are these different versions of FIPS. I mean, Fangraphs has their own version. I'm sure every single organization, professional baseball, has their own version of it. But what it measures is the three true outcomes, walks, home runs, and strikeouts. And you can value those things differently and layer on other information as well. So for me, as a coach, if I'm going to be making decisions or I'm going to be working on knowing who's going to be the guy to come in, at that point, most of the time, unless it's a contact-based issue, I'm going to go with a fifth-based metric. And what that would just say is, look, once a ball is put in play, there's an element of luck that we can't control. But what we can do is make sure that this guy is either going to miss the most amount of bats, going to limit you know, home runs, whatever, and know what we're getting from there. And I don't think that's any secret. I mean, that's been around for a million years, and every organization, every college team knows that. But sort of getting away from ERA or RA9, like runs allowed per nine innings, Mm -hmm. different things like that and looking for, okay, if I preach this as a coach for buy-in, for (laughs) this almost like sort of parallel thought, if I'm going to make a decision and tell my guys to control what they can control, I need to value them based on what they're actually controlling and not, you know, the bench coach moving the guys for the defense and doing things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's just a little bit of it. But if you're going to tell guys to trust the process, I think that we need to embrace the process as coaches from a valuation standpoint as well. Let me take a few seconds to tell you guys about OnBaseU. OnBase University is an organization that studies how the human body moves in baseball and softball. They offer certification seminars that teach coaches, trainers, and medical professionals how to assess an athlete's physical ability to perform movement patterns that are specific to hitting and pitching. For example, they just put up a blog post on their website, onbaseu.com, that discussed why hip internal rotation is important in hitting and how they evaluate it with their OnBaseU screen. If you want to learn more about OnBaseU, I did a podcast with the OnBaseU founder, Dr. Greg Rose, episode 78, and he talked about how he modeled the screen after golf assessments that he created for TPI. They are hosting pitching and hitting seminars in Phoenix, Newark, and Houston over the next few months. I will be attending one soon, and I hope to see you there. Sure, and you're not real far removed from being a player, so uh, sticking, no. sticking on the same subject of data, and then, and then we can uh, move on to some some different things from that, but... Uh, talking about data, what what would how can we use data as as far as our players go? Because sometimes I feel like uh, we can use it too much, or we can have we can have conversations that are over the player's head, and it and it doesn't it doesn't help. And so uh, the best thing that I think we can do is just to be that that middleman between okay, here are the numbers. Now, how can I break them down to help each player understand what their numbers are? and how they can improve from that, and, and just kind of being, being the translator between the raw data and the player. So what would your best advice be for that? Because I'm sure you have access to just anything and everything as far as data goes, but uh, how did you decide how, did you decide how, to, how to really have a conversation with the player about what each, each of them needed and, and in a way that, that helps them and, and helps their confidence? It's a good question. So I think that there are like two prongs that the physical and the mental side, and I'm just from the physical side, sure. say that there's a pitcher who we want to, we say, man, like this guy's got something very, very special in the bullpen. Mm-hmm. How are we going to go about making sure that this guy's slider, which is a very unique slider and very special 
actually plays well in the game because it's passing the eye test, the process-based metrics, right? Like the spin-induced movement is really solid. Everything's in a good spot. How come in the game it's not working out? Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, you can look at some of the numbers and dig in. This is where paying attention to the right metrics and ignoring or even just paying attention but, but discounting others is really important. Well, if you were going to dig deeper and say you had a rap soto or say you were just had a random Joe Schmo pitcher behind the net for inner squads, just marking down slider behind the, you know, on the bouncing at the back of the plate or way off glove side, and you just mark swings and misses based off of that, you'd probably be in a pretty good spot to know, hey, you actually have an awesome slider. Mm-hmm. You just need to stop yanking it glove side and go back of the plate. And that would be a very, let's say, cost-aware way of going about that. But say you had access to TrackMan, say you had access to Rapsodo and really good video, you could do a lot of really, really special things and tell this guy exactly what's going on. Hey, you know when you try to go glove side with the ball, you're actually affecting the axis of the pitch and it's moving totally differently. So your really special pitch, just because of your mindset to get it off the plate, you're doing yourself a gigantic disservice. And you start to say, okay, like this is blending it pretty well. And I think with young people who grew up with all this already in place, people who grew up with video games, who threw up with, who grew up knowing exactly what these conversations are about, I think it just makes it easier. So just knowing how these people learn and how these people take in information and just sort of offering it with the same sort of medium is the best way to go about it. Now, the technology is huge and that's coupled with the data because you obviously need that to collect it. Mm-hmm. But here's a, here's a good one. If you have a guy, a pitcher who has a awesome sinker, when you're watching a bullpen and you're standing in the back and you see it go down, it pops right at the knees and it's way low and there's a ton of movement going down. You may want to say, man, cosmetically that looks awesome. That pitch is great. The more movement, the better. And in a vacuum, it very well may be. The unique thing is, is what we can do with a lot of this info is if you have the Rapsodo, if you have the TrackMan, if you can do these sort of things, what you can do is say, all right, within your total repertoire, how your pitch plays out based on what the batter is doing, such as his exit below against certain pitches, maybe the pitch that looks bigger that looks better looks like it has more movement meaning the sinker down at the knees may not be as good as the sinker that's a little bit more elevated perhaps it plays off the slider better perhaps it tunnels which is a whole other debate but there's a whole lot of uh let's say leeway and there's a whole lot of discussion to be had within that Mm -hmm. but what you can do is sort of understand what batters do with general trends against it and i think that's pretty helpful because if you're going to go through a bullpen and want to be able to track what's going on and prepare for games, as a coach, you can almost be a broker or a day trader and understand what it's like to notice trends and patterns and say, hey, we're moving in this direction. It may look and feel better, but in actuality, that's not really the case, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of times, if something makes sense or is logical, you need to step back and say, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's too easy to believe. Why is this actually happening? And just so we know here, I'm not advocating for less movement to tunnel. I mean, more so than anything, the most predictive form of getting somebody out is less reaction time, meaning more velocity and a larger threshold to miss the bat, meaning more movement. Mm -hmm. So when in doubt, more movement, more velo for sure. But when you get into pitches like sliders and change-ups, it gets very, very different, especially with splitters. So knowing what that's like is tough. And if you wanted to talk more about it, just FYI, any listener, please reach out to me. It's just, it'd be tough to dig in. That's like a two hour conversation to have on this. And I don't want to get lost on that, but (laughs) here's an interesting one. I got one for you here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we talk so much about focus, right? Everyone's got to have like locked down process for every single pitch. The, and we know how important the mental game is. This is a, um, I just want to assert one potential option to be able to help guys sort of quantify their focus and buy buy-in. So say you're a pitcher, Jonathan, and 
sometimes you're you're a freaking rock star and you're mm-hmm. awesome and you're lights out. But other times you're not doing so well. And maybe that changes from game to game or pitch to pitch. What I can do is I can either get you on a track man and check out your release point, or I can set up cameras and triangulate where release points are and sort of have a clue. Now, if you can't do that, there are plenty of people online who can help you do that. Or if you're at a college, there are plenty of people in college who will help you do that. And what you can do is say, okay, I want you to go throw your pitches. And you tell this pitcher, go throw them, just be chill. It's like a regular bullpen. And then whip out 400 bucks from your pocket. Say, if you can have a tighter cluster of release points based on the track man and, or based on the camera, I will give you this $400 and I'll take you out to dinner. I'll do it right now. Money's right in front of you. If that kid doesn't focus up and have a tighter cluster of release points at that point, that, that would blow my mind. Because I've literally seen it done where you can put money in front of someone's face, make it super competitive, and the release point goes from being super scattered and all over the place to a much more concentrated area. And I think that that's a great way to take technology and say, hey, this is how important the mental side of it is. And you can start to merge the two. So food for thought. No, definitely. And so while you're on the subject of, you know, better bullpens, I... You know, I, I'm a hitting guy now, and, and I've kind of gone back and forth throughout. No, my- you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> and so I've uh, gone back and forth in my career between both of them just based on need. And and so, you know, setting up good, good bullpens is paramount in high school because, you know, last year I was the only pitching guy on staff. And so I had like 30 and 40 guys. And so it was a lot of constraints and a lot mm-hmm. of, okay, we've got to be competitive here. And I may talk talk with you a little bit. But I'd, I I want to know afterwards, you know. So what what did you wh- a lot of different things essentially. But setting up bullpens was very was very important because I mean that's the only, that's really the only opportunity they have between starts to get better on a mound. And so, what's your best advice on setting up good in game bullpen settings? And then you know trying trying for us at the amateur level to create a, a, a better bullpen setting or just better bullpens in general. Yeah, so I love this. Uh, this is kind of like preparing for a game. Each bullpen, from a coaching standpoint, in my mind, if you can prepare a couple hours before, you're in a really good spot because you can provide a roadmap for the player. And it's funny because you talk about hitting and pitching and moving between the two. Well, the recruiting coordinator down at FIU, his name's Jared Goodwin. He's coached like over 26 first rounders. Mm-hmm. He started FTB Travel Baseball, and he's a rock star. And for anyone who ever wants to know what it's like in amateur baseball with very, very limited resources to set that up from a hitting and from a pitching standpoint, I would highly suggest you reach out to Jared. He's a amazing, amazing resource for anyone. Well, in my mind, the number one thing you can do is probably track what's happened in the past okay. and try to be able to make some predictive measures. So you would go through what would be known as evaluative statistics and say, okay, Maybe that there are swings and misses, a gross number, right? So out of 30 pitches, that there are seven total swings and misses. That would be cool to know at the end of a game to say, hey, you had a lot of swings and misses, but it's not actionable. A thing that could be really good is after a game is if you could tally up, uh, and this is if you have zero technology, and on the back end, I'll talk if you do have the tech. What you could do is just say, okay, I had a pitcher in the stands, for every time we went to this zone with this pitch, maybe followed by this speed differential or anything like that, whatever it is that you wanted to work as a coach, we saw this happen. And maybe that's more barrels. Maybe that's swings and misses. Maybe it's takes. But over the course of a large time, right, and if you are going to track and be very meticulous with this through fall, where you're playing fall games or winter leading up to the spring season, you can get a, a – not a great measure, but you can try to do your best with it and start to have a clue of, okay, out of these thousand pitches that we saw, what is this presenting? What are these trends sort of looking like? And you can say, okay, this is your best pitch. Do that. Mm-hmm. Great. Practice that. Or, hey, man, these are the sequences that have worked out really well for you. And at this amateur level, sequencing kind of helps a lot. So, because a lot of times the guys just don't have the, the pure stuff. Mm-hmm. So sort of playing that chess game is so important. Well, understanding what that's like or saying, hey, 
you know, every time you throw a fastball inside, the guys just absolutely destroy you. Like, you can't get any swings and misses on it. Mm-hmm. Maybe we don't throw that pitch as much, or maybe when we do, it's for effect on the way inside part of the plate. And you don't have to say, you know what, man, you're really, really bad at this. But what you could explain on a human level is, look, you're doing a poor job of getting outs with this or getting swings and misses. But what you can do is you can set it up better by using what you do best and asking him to throw that for a certain percentage of the time or more frequently even, even if you didn't want to be super focused with it. Mm -hmm. I think that can help players sort of have a comfort knowing, wow, I actually got better today. And you don't have to leave it up to, that felt good, that didn't feel good, or that was good at the beginning and bad at the end. I never appreciated that as a player, and I always walk away with this sort of empty feeling of like, did I actually get better? But I can't say that because that's disrespectful, Mm -hmm. and you just never really know. Um, Here's a, a very interesting thing, too, is knowing when do you want to ask a player to develop versus when do you want him to just sort of try to retain their skill level at that time. Mm-hmm. So just like we talked about goal setting for bullpens, if you can know, okay, this guy's doing really, really well. He's committed to a college. Things are going hot. Maybe you get into some very like differential thing where you ask him to hold for a little bit longer, change up his movements, and you start to ask for larger demands on the body and, and sort of rhythm and cadence. And from there, you can do some fun things. And from for young guys, that's probably the way I would go about it, is just try to be as engaging as possible. Um, from a professional standpoint, if you had all the technology or you're at a great college and things are working out well, what you need to probably do is understand the process-based metrics, again, of what's actually happening, and then is it different in a game, and normalize it to their velocity if you need to. So you could say, okay, Maybe we want to go about 30 pitches. Within those 30 pitches, we need to practice going down and away with our slider 60% of the time because that's what you're doing in a game. Great. If this, and then you give the guy 20% of the bullpen to just go for feel and whatever else you need to focus on. Mm-hmm. Now, it sounds like super rigid and structured, but that actually is a process. That's a routine. And when you have a routine to fall back on, it's wonderful. Right. Now, establishing that from a quantifiable standpoint is pretty easy, especially when you have a guy who buys in. But when you have a guy who doesn't buy in and just wants, no, man, like, just let me go compete, which is awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. What you could do as a coach is say, perfect. If you just want to go compete, let's compete. I'll call out a spot and you do it. And you can almost script it out perfectly to get exactly what you want while making him happy, and no one has to be bothered by it. Mm-hmm. So an interesting thing uh, that I was able to do this past year with a player is say, hey, look, like, you know, when you throw your fastball in this zone, you're in the 99th percentile in exit velo off of it, and you're also, like, in the 98th percentile in ISO. So guys just smoke you. Like, you do terrible here. Mm-hmm. Why don't you not do that? Like, <laughs> right. don't throw their next game. And he was like, that's funny. He goes, I never really heard that. I always thought that I need to establish that part of the plate. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it'd be great to. And unfortunately, you just don't. <laughs> and, like, we just started laughing. And it wasn't a mean thing. We were just having fun with it. Well, he went out the next day and started. And he did really, really well. And he threw one pitch there the whole game. And he went four innings with a one-hitter. And it, no, by no means was it that. But we sat down at the end of the game. And I asked him, I said, hey, what what do you think that was? He said, I know that I had a plan and I knew exactly where I wanted to go with each guy. And in the bullpen leading up to it, that's exactly what we practiced. And then in the preparation for the game, talked about it with the catcher, talked about it with, with the pitcher. So he had real life practice in the bullpen and that bled over to the preparation before the game and then in-game adjustments as well without having to dome somebody up. He gave them a measure of, hey, I've actually been there. I've done it. He doesn't just have to visualize it. You can actually take a guy through his game plan in a bullpen, almost as like a dress rehearsal. No, I love that. And that's got to be, got to be extremely good for your confidence too, because you're like, Hey, this is backed by uh, myself that, that I've talked with my coach about. 
this is backed by, you know, especially in your, in your instance with data. And so I, I have a plan to attack this guy with my best stuff. And, and that's got to be huge for your confidence going out on the mound. And, and, yeah. and I mean, it's, I, I can only imagine that if, you know, I, I, me playing several years ago, uh, that would have, that would have helped me out a ton. And so that's absolutely an, an awesome, an awesome example. And, and I love that. And, and so something that you that you keep hitting on, especially in bullpens, is um, competitiveness, and and you're you're talking about hey, hit this spot, and 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 this or that, and 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 definitely focus, and and I think that that all kind of it it all kind of comes into uh, one thing, and and I I want to talk about command. I, I want to talk about how do we how do we take all of those things that you're talking about, like just awareness and being able to do what what you do well, and and uh psychology and and all of this and and that all is summed up with command i think i mean i i don't know how else to put it but uh in short okay. how, how do we develop command because I, I think that 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 we've got a pretty good idea of how to how to make velocity better and and this different stuff but i don't think we've even come close to how developing command so what's what's your best guess on that well command is an interesting thing and I don't think that it's any secret or a new thing. I think on social media, uh, a lot of people are talking about command training and with differential command balls that you see from driveline and Trevor Bauer. And those are awesome. I mean, how cool is it that literally, if you do three clicks from Twitter to driveline, you could literally buy balls to help you with your command with legit like backing and strategy behind it. The guys like Sam and Eric and Kyle and, Mike, like those guys have gone to extreme efforts to be able to support that. Mm-hmm. So I think that if you were just going to go into a very, let's say, I don't necessarily need to learn a ton, but I just want to be able to offer it up, that'd be great. Um, now, if you did want to really dig in, understanding that uh, the different elements of skill acquisition and motor learning is super useful. And there are a ton of textbooks out where you can go and find it. There are great experts, guys like Rob Gray excuse me, and you can go really to any resource you want. But what I would say, if you're going to go through a command-based training session with just say, say strictly the balls, because I don't, again, if anyone wants to dig in deeper with this, hit me up one-on-one, but I don't want to get too deep into this now, Jonathan. But just know that there will be a time where skill level will fluctuate. There's an ebb and flow to acquiring a skill and sort of being able to pilot it out with players in the off season and know what it's like for a very specific period of time. That, okay, maybe this, maybe our command, and you obviously want to track this, will go down. Maybe the success rate will almost plummet at the beginning and then sort of taper off and then come back up and gradually incline. And then from there, you'll be able to sort of maintain that level. So hmm. knowing what that's like is so big for the player's psychological factor. So if you're going to go through command training, a huge part of that is the player actually being freed up to repeat the actual outcome, not the necessary movement, but the outcome itself. Now, if a player has a plan and knows, hey, this is not you. If you throw three out of 10 strikes right here, this is not a reflection of you. I don't give a single, I, I don't care. And that's awesome. But if you let him know, hey, this is week two, but by week seven, I'd expect you to be six out of 10 or eight out of 10. And we start to repeat more and you sort of give him that roadmap and give him that sort of comfort and vulnerability where he doesn't have to necessarily compete for outcome every day, but he has to compete for the confidence in that given moment to be able to trust the training. Then you're in a really good spot. And I've seen people use weighted balls for a little bit and say, my command went down, I couldn't feel it. Yeah, well, you probably stopped weighted balls after three weeks, huh? Yeah, okay, it makes a lot of sense. But it'd be really tough to make a counter-argument about using various implements, right, mm-hmm. in any industry, and say that it's going to make your skill level go down long-term. Short-term, certainly, you can regress by all means. Long-term, it'd be really tough. At that point, learning what motor programming is like and what motor programs are and the differences between fine and gross skills and everything like that is so big. So 
if you want to know, I would just implore you to just pick up a textbook and sink your teeth in for a week and you'll be good to go and then do it again and again. And, you know, after a couple months, you should be pretty proficient. Yeah, definitely. And, and I love that you brought it back to it's, it's again, back to communication with the player and just letting them know beforehand, hey, you may see some stuff go down because to, to me, if I'm a player and, and Max, no offense, if, if you're working with me and, and the first, or first week or two, I start to suck and you don't tell me that, I may not be completely bought in. I mean, to, just to be completely Nor honest. Nor should because, you. Right. Nor should you. But You know, we have a responsibility to let you know exactly what we expect to happen. And maybe it won't happen. But just knowing, hey, these are the possible outcomes seems pretty basic. You know, it's a very human thing to be able to prepare someone for what they're going to go through next. So why not do it with pitching? No, absolutely. And and I love that. And, and that's, man, that's, that's something I've got to get better at and just ex- over explaining almost and, and, and in a way that, that I, I, I really don't, never mind. I really don't like that term over explaining, but, but explaining it in a way <laughs> that, that it can't be misunderstood. So if there's any miss, like if there's any uh, not understanding from the player's perspective, I, I want to know for sure. And, and that's, that's something that, that I may make that as a, as a 2019 goal, but uh, but before you go, I, I really want to know, you know, you, you've been a year in pro ball and, and obviously you're, you're extremely bright. So what are some things that uh, you've really dug into in the last year and, and you've just, you know, that, that have really changed your mindset or, or, uh, or, it, well, let me, let me phrase it in a different way. What's something that you've learned in the last year that's really gotten you excited? Well, I've really started to try to get more into uh, game management type stuff. Uh, just cause that's super interesting and it's not something that I'm doing right now. And it's not something that is my best utility, but it is a, a gigantic hobby. So for that, I'm not like, I haven't really read baseball books, but there are a lot of really cool resources out there through edX, through Coursera, through just google.com. So a thing that I personally really enjoyed a lot is that Princeton offers a course in probabilistic thinking. And they offer it completely free. It's not like a real course. It's just a syllabus and the information is out there. At least it was when I went through it. Uh, And you can go through different measures there. And then you can (laughs) go on to Coursera or edX and learn about what data actually is. And I am by no means an expert at all. I wouldn't even consider myself, uh, you know, intermediate level, very, very novice. Um, But there are some people who just have a ton of insight and it's not my job to be able to be proficient with everything. Mm-hmm. But I do think that diversity of exposure, not necessarily like experience, but just exposure to different say realms, mm-hmm. I can almost use it as a currency and it can help me stay more objective. And when I am able as a coach within a game to say, okay, based on the numbers, I can almost expect this to happen more often than not. I don't have to say, okay, let's go. Let's, let's try to do this. I know we'll say, you know what? Like I know most of the time, this is what's going to happen. There's no need to freak out. There's no need to be anxious Mm -hmm. because you know what? If I can control the process then awesome, but I can't can't control the distribution of the outcomes. I just need to know that 70% of the time this will work out. I don't know when that 70% occurs, but I'm going to give myself the best shot. So that, um, also I'm very, very heavy into Spanish. And one of my good friends, he's an r- amazing, amazing pitching coach with the Indians, Owen Dew, who's also super close friends with Mark Allen. Uh, we talk a lot about Spanish and how important it is. Because if you don't know Spanish, you're effectively missing out on 40% of relationships available within the minor leagues. And what a terrible thing to do. So even if you don't care about training, you don't care about development or in-game management, so you don't care about anything at all other than spending time and loving players in professional baseball. It seems like you really need to learn Spanish. So I'm not fluent, but certainly beyond conversational. And it's, it's been an immeasurable gift. It's been crazy. No, so that's awesome. That's, and we've spoken a couple of times about uh, trying to learn it. And I think that what, what, wasn't it you that told me that, um, to listen to lyrics and song lyrics and, and music. Isn't that a good way to do that? Oh yeah. I love that. I would go on YouTube and 
get it going. I, granted, I'm also from Miami, so sure. I'm used to hearing like really quick talking Spanish, uh-huh. which is great. And I have a lot of family that's Spanish. My brother's names are Diego and Fernando, so it's awesome. But there's a there's there are a lot of ways to go about it. And I don't necessarily think studying on things like Duolingo are always the best. I, I know for me, it was just listening and talking and forcing myself to hang out with all the Latin players as much as I could and force them to speak in Spanish to me. Uh, that was the best way. And I was able to see like gigantic, gigantic yields. Right. Yeah. It's a, and it's a, so you're setting me up, we're doing this, this podcast on new year's Eve and you're setting me up for a 2019 full of, of learning and growth. And so, uh, Max, we we appreciate (laughs) you having you on man. And, and if anyone would like to get in touch with you and just, to really pick your brain about a little bit more in depth about any of the stuff that we covered today, what would be the best way to do so? Well, I have a Twitter and I know that you're huge and super successful on Twitter, Jonathan. So, uh, you just reach out to me. My messages are wide open and there's a lot of stuff that's going on, but if you reach out to me, I will do my best to try to get back to you as quickly as possible. And I welcome that. Not just like, I'll say, yeah, okay. Like, That'd be really cool. I'd love to connect with people and talk about it, especially if you want to talk about like really cool substantive things. Just reach out to me on Twitter. Cool. Well, I'm just going to open up the mic for you. And Max, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Uh, yeah, I think baseball's at this weird juncture. And I think it's important to know that in 2018, moving into 2019, that we are, how do I say this? As coaches, we need to be almost like politicians and a fact where we need to be representative of our constituents in a way mm-hmm. where if our players are interested in, in something or speak a certain language or are looking to do certain things, we need to be able to represent them in that exact way that we would expect our representatives in the political system to represent us. So not just saying, Oh, I'm only new school, right? Which isn't, which is a ridiculous thing to say. Or I'm old school, which is also a ridiculous thing to say. And just saying like, hey, I'm just open. And Alan Jager told me this really amazing, cool thing, which is uh, this concept of open focus, where you're not necessarily pushing for any dead set agenda, but all you're doing is just sort of accepting everything that comes into play and manipulating it to be able to fit your personal beliefs, but also work for others. And I would just ask that as we keep going, it's not analytics versus anti-analytics or quantifiable player development versus not. It's just, let's just do things together because at the end of the day, if you just tell a kid to go smile more and long toss, he'll get better. Like I'm a firm believer in that. So I certainly would like to move away from measuring a person by their coaching ability and actually measure people by who they are and the contents of their character, which I think in baseball is great because you have so many relationship-oriented people. I just hope that this climate continues to be more accepting of everyone and the diverse thought. And just by saying, hey, let's be new school and let's be progressive, I certainly hope that it doesn't close us off to anything that may be pre-established as truth or pre-established as really, really good insight, even if it isn't measurable. Well, Max, I... I kind of lied to you. I don't want to, I don't, I guess that's a harsh term to say it, but we forgot to, or I forgot to ask you about just some different experiences that you've had. And, and you got to work with some absolutely outstanding player development guys. And a couple of them I've actually gotten to have on the podcast. And so again, before, before you go, I I just want to ask you, you know, what was it like working with those guys? And, and, you know, we, we talk about, being on the edge of player development all the time and, and being a good mix of old school and new school. And, and I think really some of the guys that you got to work with every single day really epitomize that. And so uh, talk with us a little bit about that before you go. Yeah, so this is probably my favorite question of it all because the people who I was with this past year and people who I've been with for a long time have been so special. And you've interviewed Ryan Fair, you've interviewed Kai Correa, And those two guys are very, very special and I'll touch on them both. And then the rest, but Ryan is, is the epitome of a gentleman. And he, all he does is care for people. And on top of that, if you've listened to his podcast or follow him on Twitter, you know that he knows things as far as lifting and he's always working to inform himself. And it's it's just such a cool thing. Mm -hmm. Kai straight up 
pound for pound, probably the best coach I've ever been around in my entire life. Mm. And if someone ever topped him on that, I would, I would be so beyond impressed, you know, and there, it was really cool because the Indians do a great job of creating very special people and I'm not promoting them or anything like that. It's just a lot of really special friends from the top down with Mike Chernoff being such a gentleman who's a GM and James Harris being among the, the best leaders you could ever imagine the best boss you could ever want to, you know, I don't, I don't really think that I have like mentors really, but if you're going to ask me like, who's your mentor, I'd probably tell you Ruben Yebla, the pitching coordinator there. Uh, he's about as well-versed in the human form of the game and his content knowledge is tremendous and just an amazing friend. I think guys like JT McGuire to Owen do to guys in the front office, like Sam Giller. I mean, it's just guys who are just really, really special. Um, and I think that as we move into a more, as we continue to push baseball forward, I hope that we can continue to hoard these ideas, but also hoard these sort of amazing personalities where people are caring and interested in idea sharing and knowing that. So my growth was probably accelerated by a factor of 10, not from the experience that I had, but from the exposure that I had to the amazing people who were there. And I expect the same to hopefully continue with the Mariners, but I hope colleges and high schools and everyone else continues to do that. And that's the beauty of this podcast is you're connecting people and hopefully this isn't a disappointment and hopefully we can continue to idea share together. I love that. And, and I don't think that there's any way, better way to end the show than that. Well, Again, Max, thank you for being on and sharing so much with us, and uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you, my brother. You have a happy new year, and I'll talk to you very soon. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. Before you go, I'd love to be able to get in touch with you, and we have several different ways of doing so. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AOTC underscore podcast. You can join the AOTC Coaches Facebook group, And if you want to be a part of the mini clinic emails, both of those links are listed below. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating or review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.